Hi, and welcome to Episode 4 of Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We hope from wherever you're listening, you're safe and healthy. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Amanda Halter, co-leader of Pillsbury's multidisciplinary crisis management focus team, which counsels companies across industry sectors on how to survive and thrive amid corporate crises of all kind. Amanda also heads Pillsbury's COVID-19 task force. So in addition to being swamped, helping clients manage financial and reputational risk, Amanda, you are now front and center co-leading Pillsbury's strategy and response on all things related to the pandemic. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Joel. It's great to be with you, albeit uh, many miles away. You must be putting out fires all day long these days. I've heard you say many times that you can't manage a crisis unless you understand the psychology of the crisis. Can you explain what that means and why it's so important? Yeah, well, just as people in crisis respond differently than they do under normal circumstances, so too do companies facing crisis. We we all know that when we are shocked, uh, upset, angry, traumatized, or fearful, the way we react is different. It's, It's more emotional, it's less informed, it's less strategic. We may react disproportionately, too much or too little, too delayed, myopically or or from a place of denial. Um, Maybe we aren't able to perceive how bad things really are. It's why it's typically unwise to make personal decisions in such circumstances if you can avoid it. We all understand that general principle. Companies are just like individuals in this respect because they're nothing more than an amalgam of people. And an organization, just like an individual in crisis, can suffer from a prevailing sense of shock grief, upset, anger, anxiety, and denial that impairs the organization's ability to really assess circumstances clearly and objectively and to make decisions that will serve the company well over the long term. Now, in normal times and peace times, I'm like to say, well-managed companies typically use pretty sophisticated decision-making, consensus-building, and project management approaches to achieve their business goals, to to make goal-oriented, principled, but unemotional decisions. In a crisis, those processes easily get upended. They're upended by unpredictable and abnormal demands that stem from the crisis. It's why you will see sophisticated organizations make pretty gross errors in the early days of managing a crisis. And it's not the complexity that challenges the leaders. Most corporate leaders successfully manage layers of complexity all the time. It's the psychological assault that befalls a company facing a crisis that impairs that ability to respond. Um, and, and one of the concrete ways that I often see this manifest is a, is a tendency to accept the initial facts reported, you know, from, uh, from folks on the ground or folks at the scene, or, or folks closely associated with the events that issue as true, to accept those things as true, or as being most of the truth. Yet, they rarely are. And, and the mistake of believing that the facts are unlikely to take a turn for the worse. That's a really great point, Amanda. And I guess, in fact, we've seen governments do that over and over again throughout the current crisis that we're in. 
Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing it play out on a global scale as we all, as one collective global humanity here, try to grapple with a crisis that none of us has experienced before in our lifetime. And I'll, I'll give you an old but good example of this in a, in a corporate crisis context. In, in 2013, a factory in Bangladesh that manufactured clothing collapsed. It was, it was an unbelievable and horrific event in which um, I think something like 380 people died during the factory collapse. And, and clothing retailers quickly worked to distance themselves from the factory. They didn't want to be associated with it. And among them was Benetton. Uh, a, a prestigious Italian clothing company. And Benetton came out and they issued a statement saying that they had not used the factory for manufacturing their clothes. And then, fast forward a day or so, and the newspapers published an absolutely damning picture of factory rubble from this collapse overlaying with a beautiful blue collared shirt with Benetton's iconic green tag there for all to see. Um, and the company then had to backtrack. Now, I, I wasn't involved in this crisis, so I don't have particular knowledge here, but my hi hypothesis, just having had enough front row seats in these kinds of scenarios to, to know how this plays out, is that management heard about the factory uh, collapse, you know, tried to quickly assess their very complex supply chain got information to suggest that there was no association with the factory that had collapsed. And whew, what a relief. Our, our, certainly no one wanted to believe that the brand could be the subject of such a tragedy, latched onto that, and denied any connection. But it turned out that they were wrong. And as I said, the facts of the beginning often are wrong. And the fallout of that break in the public trust um, was, was bad. And it was evidently quite costly to the company for many years to come. And there are... There are many versions of this sort of psychological bias at play in crisis scenarios. You'll see you know, the light touch on an internal investigation, only to have unfortunate pictures surface on social media later, an oil spill that is underestimated. And, and most people, in my experience, really are not meaning to deceive themselves or others. But, but when you're on the front line, the human tendency for denial is simply real. It's just there. And if you're managing a corporate crisis, you have to realize that that's happening and account for it in how you are moving through it. And just not to toot our own horns here too much, but frankly, it's one of the values that we as outside counsel help bring in a crisis. Our, our position helps us um, have a little bit of objectivity and distance and also you know, some benchmarking based on others' experiences on these kinds of roller coasters. The fact is, in the immediate shadow of a crisis, during crisis, the company has to take particular care to recognize that the facts are filtered, that they change on a dime, and that things could actually get worse before they get better. And you've seen the consequences of that in this context play out quite largely. Um, organizations that have the ability to get real about the implications of the coronavirus on their operations to coolly evaluate things earlier are navigating better a situation that is really hard for us all. So once a company understands the crisis, uh, which I guess is the first step, then I imagine you would devise a strategy to deal with it. And that approach can either be proactive or reactive, leading to wildly different consequences. What can you tell us about the two approaches in your experience? When crisis hits, 
the initial imperative is response. You are literally reacting to what is immediately happening. You're putting out the fire, you know, real or hypothetical. People describe it as drinking from a fire hose. And that's, I think that's a fair analogy. There's just so much incoming that it can be really hard to keep your balance. However, the sooner a company can transition from that reactive posture to a proactive one, they've grabbed onto the fire hose and they're now aiming it. The stronger the likelihood they'll have of surviving and perhaps even thriving amidst that crisis. A proactive posture is a it's a goal oriented approach. You have made enough analytical progress and thinking about how things may play out that you can begin to see the other side of it. You have some visibility into what your new normal may look like, and you have a sense of the direction you're headed in. You're actively moving that way instead of responding to things as they come. And, and I'll say this just in terms of practical advice here. Good response plans prepared beforehand can reduce some of the time it takes to go from being reactive to being proactive. And it's been really informative to observe how some organizations have been able to pivot so quickly during this coronavirus crisis. They're still in it like all of us, but at the same time, they're actively working toward their new normal. They're finding new opportunities and they're lacking peer organizations even in the same industries whose entire bandwidth is simply consumed by the here and now. That's really interesting, Amanda. And we definitely see that in our finance practice, uh, where borrowers are often faced with a proactive, reactive decision tree when deciding whether to approach their lenders for a waiver in advance of an anticipated breach or wait until after the breach occurs. And making the wrong decision can result in a loss of trust or ill will and sometimes just plain old embarrassment. Once the crisis is hit and the impact is registered, what's your recommendation for cleaning up the mess? Oh my, well, there are a lot of layers to that question, but let me give a really concrete suggestion. Uh, and you don't hear it often from lawyers, and it's this. Don't underestimate the power of an apology done well. Apologies can really de-escalate a situation and preserve goodwill for the company, even when serious mistakes have been made. Bottom line, running from bad facts usually just gives them longer legs. Uh, it doesn't make them any less bad. And this is not to say that it is easy to do a good apology or that otherwise taking ownership of mistakes is, is easy to do well. There is a lot that goes into an effective apology. And on these points, I, I usually recommend a really thoughtful approach. Recognize that the right word said and the wrong venue can land with the thud. And I'll just give you an example here. I've seen this happen where, you know, a, a company um, rushes out to give a public statement on their PR consultant's advice that some kind of apology, and they've forgotten to speak with the aggrieved, you know, person or person. Um, and those aggrieved person or persons end up feeling bypassed and therefore further aggrieved. Um, or, or even sometimes the decision to issue a public statement at all when, a lighter touch, a phone call, an in-person visit, um, you know, would have dramatically improved the reception. And from a legal perspective, there's a lot to consider as well, such as what are the implications for the company's liability positions, for the company's insurance coverage positions. But in, in general, if you can work through the complexities, a well-done corporate apology can really help turn the page in a corporate crisis. 
Thank you, Amanda, for a really insightful and informative discussion. I'm so glad you were able to join me today. And now for this week in history, I'd like to highlight two unrelated events that occurred 115 years apart from each other with a hope that they will light a path for our future. On May 9th, 1865, the American Civil War came to its official end. And on May 8th, 1980, uh, the official eradication of smallpox, which had devastated humanity for some 1,600 years, was announced by the World Health Organization. As America looks to pull itself out of the current crisis and come back more resilient and stronger than we were before, we can take inspiration from knowing that if we were able to overcome the Civil War and smallpox, we should be well equipped to unite the country for both an economic recovery and the defeat of COVID-19. To all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.